You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. It's like when the power goes out, and all of a sudden it's quiet, and you think, well, what's that other sound? That's, that's the blood in my body. That's me. I'm alive. And I think that's what like a place like Haystack does, because you're there, and you're, you're able to just stop. I just got bored of myself. <laughs> I decided to kind of toss it all in the air, and I sold, uh, I had a farmhouse at 14 acres, and I sold that, I sold my business, and I just moved to Maine with no prospect, really, of what I would do. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 286, Maine Live, Poetry and Public Art, airing for the first time on Sunday, March 12, 2017. Twice a year, we at Love Maine Radio are fortunate to take part in a day-long gathering of creative Mainers of every description called Maine Live. Today, we speak with two of our upcoming Maine Live speakers. Maine's current Poet Laureate, Stuart Kestenbaum, is the interim president of the Maine College of Art. Donna McNeil is the former director of the Maine Arts Commission. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Love Main Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at Aristel.com. Tickets for Maine Live, a day of insightful talks by the business and creative people shaping the future of our state, are on sale now. Join host Dr. Lisa Belisle and 14 mesmerizing speakers for a day that will inspire conversation and connection. This fourth Maine Live is on Thursday, March 30th at USM's Abramson Center. Go to MainLiveEvent.com for more information and to purchase your tickets. It's always um, fun for me to be able to interview people who do things that I really love, um, including writing poetry. And this person not only is a poet, but also has made a life out of teaching and advocating for poetry, I guess you can say. This is Stuart Kestenbaum, who is currently serving as the interim president of the Maine College of Art here in Portland. He is the author of four collections of poems, most recently Only Now. He was appointed Maine's Poet Laureate last March, and he was the director of the Haystack Mountain School of Crafts in Deer Isle for the last 27 years. That's very impressive. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. So I think that we need to start, being that you are a poet, we need to start with one of your poems. Okay. Well, this is a poem that uh, I think we may not have winters like this anymore, but the kind of winter where uh, uh, the ice sticks around for a long time. But there's still, I was walking here down Congress Street, and I could see by one city center there where they plowed it up, there's still snow that's going to last a long time. This is called A Cold Rain the Day Before Spring. From heaven it falls on the gray pitted ice that has been here since December 
and the gutter rivulets erode piles of dirt and road salt into small countries, and the morning is so dark in school, teachers turn on fluorescent lights, and everyone comes in smelling of damp wool. From heaven it falls, just the opposite of prayer, which I send up at the traffic light. Please, let me begin over again, one more time over again. Wipe the slate clean, the same way after school. Janitors, keys jangling from belt loops, will use a wet rag and wipe the school day off, so there is only the residue, faint white, on the smooth surface. It's the same way the infield looks before the game begins, or the ice on a rink between periods all new again for the moment and glistening. Imagine, each day you get to start again and again. How many days does the janitor enter the room of your soul, wipe it clean, go out into the hallway, and push his broom down the long corridor full of doors to so many rooms? Well, tell me about that poem. Where did that come from? Where does it come from? Well, it probably started in elementary school when I first began to notice janitors. Uh, and maybe going to a baseball game when I was young when you could afford to go to baseball games and watch how they would do the infield or watching a Zamboni at the, now it's Cross Arena, I guess, former Cumberland County Civic Center as images of, of starting over. And uh, the actual genesis of it, I was in uh, just, it was that time of year in, in March, it was kind of a wet, dark day. And uh, so that, that's what started me, and the images that it evoked came up because of my experience. I'd say the, it was, it was weather-driven to start. Starting over again is something that we do every day, every month, every year, and sometimes several big times a lifetime. Mm -hmm. You've actually had a little bit of a starting over yourself recently. I, ha I have. I uh, left... Uh, Haystack, I was the director for 27 years. In May of 2015, I I left. And uh, so it has yeah, a pretty big shift. It was uh, like, uh, what did it feel like? Like the last notes that I wrote were like a parent leaving instructions before they leave their kids for the night and go off. Or it was like a bigger than that, actually. <laughs> More like, like uh, but the sense of just tying things up and knowing I was going to step away and... I guess the biggest thing is being able to let that go so that you're not uh, like starting again or starting a new thing is also being willing to let go of the old thing and and let that be what it needs to be. Uh, so yeah, that's a pretty big step. Why? Why was it why did I do it? Yeah, why did you do it? Well I'd done I felt like I'd done a lot of things when I was there and we had developed a programs in our local schools. I developed programs in writing. Uh, we had a new residency program which hadn't existed before, which was, uh, we were fortunate to have fully endowed, and uh, a relationship with MIT where we had a digital fabrication lab. So I felt like a lot of things. I felt like that's great. Like now somebody else can, can take that and run with it. It wasn't that I couldn't have done it, but for me I wanted to have uh, uh, was always driven by the creative impulse, and I always wanted to have that. And I felt like I had uh, used my creative impulse on those, and now I felt like I wanted to have more time to devote to writing, to working on other projects. So, so the way that you uh, describe the creative impulse is isn't just about 
an artist who creates something visual, something written, but it's some it's an artist who creates a school or a program or a community yeah. or is involved in creating, I guess. Right. I mean, to me, a, a, a place uh, like Haystack uh, is given over, it's, it's, its total purpose is about creativity. So I think the right administrative response is not to look at you want to look at numbers, you want to make sure that you can do the programs you're going to do, but I think you want to have first and foremost that it's that that the reason you're there is to do creative things. And the same at Maine College of Art, you know, you have to stop and say, well, you know, are we here to be here or are we here to do something? And if you answer the do something, then that's a creative impulse. And once that happens, um, you can go into uh, the the part of the uh, that's creative, I think, is that you say, well, what if we did this? Not, oh, well, we can't do that because of these reasons. Or, what if we were to imagine this? And once you begin to imagine, then every then it's a creative act. I mean, I guess bookkeeping, you don't want to have be creative in that way. But, but most everything else, I think, you... Uh, but even looking at numbers, you know, you can say, well, the numbers say this, but there are many ways to look at numbers. Uh, you know, you can look at, uh, like, what you want, what you spend in a year, but if you're not saving to do things that you want to do in your own life or institutionally, then, I mean, that's another way to look at numbers. So I think even that, I think it's a matter of, with creativity of looking at possibility and having the tools w where you can uh, attempt to make that happen. Haystack is very much at the, the end of the world. You're at the beginning of the world. Or the beginning yeah. of the world. Yeah. Maybe right the at, at the edge. The it's where it stops and starts. The line's right there. That's probably yeah. a good way to put it. Yeah. Maybe the end of the world that many of us know yeah. in the southern main area. Mm -hmm. How's yeah. that? Yeah. And then you flip-flopped. Now you're right in the middle. I right. Mean, Maine College of Art is squarely in the middle of Portland. Right. And geographically, and there's so many big differences between the two. Yeah. And I used to, before I was at Haystack, I lived in Portland. So, you know, I wanted, it was great to be able to come back and be in this environment. Many more restaurants than they used to be, much more expensive in terms of what you pay for rent and those things. But, you know, the thing to me that joins them together is there's a, uh, a spirit of creativity and a sense of place. And I think uh, that um, Portland's bigger than Deer Isle, but I think that sense of a place of what a community means to the the members of that community and the kind of energy that people have at Maine College of Art to make things happen is very similar to what to Deer Isle and Haystack. Our road, the roads in Deer Isle are worse, but there's no traffic. Also, in my limited experience, it's very beautiful up there, and it was nice and quiet because I had very little cell phone reception, at least for my cell phone, right. in that area. So I had a lot of time to sort of wander around in my own mm -hmm. mind and really enjoy nature and mm -hmm. enjoy the people that I was with. So yeah. that's a, it's a very different sense than being right in the middle of Portland where the energy just feels... Right. And I think a big part of, of uh, a retreat setting like Haystack, which is remote on Deer Isle, is that uh, you're able to disconnect. So, you know, when the school was started in the 1950s, uh, it uh, what was a seemed like a pretty regular thing. You could go somewhere for three weeks and work on something without interruption. 
now is like a radical act in the world that you can actually go someplace and pay attention to one thing and you know there's a there's the art part of that the creative part of it and then there's the sense of how we deal with with time so you get to this place where you know it's the beginning of the world or the end of the world or you're at an edge where you can uh, stop and think about what you're doing differently it's like the the other things it's like when the power goes out and then all of a sudden it's quiet and you think well what's that other sound that's that's the blood in my body that's me i'm alive and i think that's what like a place like haystack does because you're there and you're you're able to just stop i mean you could do that i guess if you uh with the sabbath i mean that's the same impulse i think is to like uh, you know stop time slow it down so you can and then i think people begin to say well what matters to me once you get quiet and go well you know that doesn't matter and that doesn't matter but this is what really matters uh, and I th- and I think that's uh, I think that happens in a, like a studio experience too, but definitely in a, a place where it's different from what you know, and you can reflect. The Maiden College of Art has really evolved mm-hmm. over the last probably couple of decades, I guess. Yeah, I remember it when I was growing up as the Portland School of Art. Right. And it's expanded, and it's drawing students from really all over the world. Yep. Um, it has a broad range of programs. I know that the music program has really taken off in addition to all the visual arts and right. all the, the writing that is going on there. What's that like for you to be in, in such a very differently dynamic place? It's a, it's a very similar impulse. Uh, you know, I think that to me... Um, being in one building, or primarily one building, at the you know the old Porches Mitchell and Braun department store, which I remember going in to buy a blender when I first got married. Uh, I think I bought a bathing suit there. It's once. A, it was a big store, it really was. you know. And then uh, this year, Mecca won uh, received an economic achievement award from the uh, Portland Development Council in recognition of its impact which really goes back to when Roger Gilmore was president in the early 90s and the school made a big leap to say, let's go into this five-story vacant department store. And, and I, was, I didn't do anything to, re- to merit the award, but because I'm the president now, I got to accept the award. It's great just to be able to do that. But it made me reflect on, if you take the creative energy of Maine College of Art out of Congress Street, that's a whole different street. And that that really is a driver that the, that creativity is really you know why why those restaurants are around there if you take if you take mecca out of that that doesn't exist so it's like it really is uh, um, that creativity made a, so much happen and it's a, so there's a kind of energy with that and i think the new programs uh, only expand that we're going to be launching the salt institute for documentary studies or relaunching it because it was a freestanding program before and that gives us the opportunity to interact with other main communities through storytelling. So to really uh, put the Maine and Maine College of Art into the rest of Maine and uh, the ways that the college can interact with the community, uh, the Institute for Contemporary Art, all those I think are really opening the, the college up in lots of ways. So it's really uh, a center for creativity and to see the, the mostly young people who are students there who then wind up, they might come to Maine from elsewhere and decide to stay. That's a kind of in-migration that 
that everybody is looking for to have creative people want to stick around and that's happening so it's a it's a uh, it's pretty exciting you are Maine's um, poet laureate yes which is a big deal well it's, it's a deal <laughs> it's a deal I think it's a big deal I mean the fact that Maine even has a poet laureate and that you now get to be that right how as an ambassador of of the poem how does this feel to you because that's such a beautiful small secret thing yeah to have that poetry well you know it's a, a what i i like about it i'm honored you know to have been uh, chosen the people who uh, were laureates before me like betsy shoal and Wes mcnair and kate barnes and baron worms are really exceptional writers and uh so it's a bit daunting to be named after them. Uh, but, you know, it's also a kind of a responsibility, like, uh, like uh, to be an advocate for poetry, to say what kind of place poetry can have in a world uh, such as ours, to speak well, not make grammatical errors if you can help it. And... Uh, and I think, uh, it, so it gives, you know, once you say, well, this is the title you have, and they go, oh, you, you're that, and then you can say something. So it's almost, it, it gives you a way to, uh, uh, it's a platform. So I was uh, asked to do, uh, to read before the legislature, because every session, uh, they begin with a benediction or prayer. And so Walter Kamega, who is the representative for Deer Isle, arranged for me to do it when I was named laureate. And I said, well, I'm not, you know, I'm um, Minister, I was a comparative religion major in college, but they said I could, I should do it, and and they said I got a note from the clerk of the house saying it should be um, brief, ecumenical, and uplifting. Those were the three characteristics of what you should say. And when I got there, uh, everybody was great, and I was at the full house and uh, beginning of the session, and all the legislators stood up, which is what they do before benediction. And I said, you know, this is not not a prayer, it's a poem I'm going to read, but that I felt that, uh, that a prayer and a poem both had something in common because they made you um, slow down and pay attention to things. And uh, so that was, that was, uh, was interesting to be able to like, speak to legislators from all over. And, uh, and uh, it's, you know, it's uh, to have the power of, of, the, of the words of a poem speak to them in some way. So I said amen at the end of the poem because they were still standing. So then they sat down. <laughs> what is it about us as humans that causes us to crave that pause? That, I mean, we can all, we all have our stories about how religion has caused us perhaps strife in our lives. But there's something about humans that is still deeply spiritual, mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah. And there's something about poetry that creates that connection. Yeah. Uh, Mark Strand, who was a U.S. Poet Laureate, uh, I read an essay he wrote uh, many years ago where he's talking about uh, that when, when people are troubled, they don't turn to a novel. They turn to poetry. And if there's grief, you know, they may send a Hallmark card that is a verse. 
because there's some impulse to want to say something in a special way at those times or to or to have language act in some way that makes sense and uh, so like these are really dark times so it's it's kind of a growth time for poetry everybody knows where to turn uh, I think that it it makes you know it it's somehow uh, you're not uh, what Mark Strand says is you're not like turning the page to get to the next thing the way you would with a novel you're actually staying with the one thing and I think it I think it just opens up a moment in a way that lets you uh, instead of rushing along with time it's saying nope listen right now and I think uh, I think that that's what people want to turn to it and I do think there's a there's a spiritual impulse and it's only when mostly you can run past it now but all something will happen that will stop you and, you and you'll realize it's time to uh, pay attention Why did you decide that poetry spoke to you the most of all written type art? I mean, you could have been perhaps a novelist or a journalist, or or maybe you couldn't yeah, have been. Know. I don't it know. It may be the way I like I see uh, images or conceive of them. You know, I don't feel uh, uh, like writing a long story that I would see the beginning and end of or know where it was going. Uh, or even not know where it's going, but just take that much time. Um, in terms of the rhythms of my own writing, I think I'm, I'm much more compact. So I might see something, imagine that thing, and follow it to where it concludes. It would be kind of my impulse. So I, I, I like writing. You know, I actually like writing grants. I was working on one yesterday, and uh, and I was the same. You know, I was thinking, how's it? How's this going to end? I wanted to have a little lift in it the way I would want a poem to. So it doesn't always feel dissimilar. Uh, I want that language to be as engaging as a language in a poem. Like sometimes people uh, get stiffer, like if they want to say, rather than use natural language to describe why you want the money to do a project, you dress it up in some way that makes it so abstract nobody really knows what you want. And if you tell somebody a story and say, you know, the reason we want to do this project is it means that these kids will be able to come and do this thing. They go, wow, that's great. You're not going to say we're going to service this many so and sos. You know that that is not compelling to anybody. I think the the story is. So in, maybe I'm contradicting myself, but that's the same thing I find in a poem or in writing. To me, it's really uh, that writing can engage people and tell us tell some kind of story. For me, the story winds up being a shorter one of a of a poem because I I think I think in that length. As you're talking about grant writing, I'm thinking about other areas where people end up getting very prosaic and difficult to follow sometimes. I think about medicine. Right. Where, look at all the stories we have in medicine, and William Carlos Williams, he absolutely right. knew that there were stories in medicine and wrote right. about them. Right. And yet, if you read a medical chart, it, it doesn't really always reflect that. It reflects sort of the cells and the, right. and the x-rays and the testing. But it it and doesn't the language is right, and is it kind of dis allows you to distance yourself from the actual yes. thing. And I was just uh, reading uh, in the New Yorker the piece Atul Gawande wrote about um, incremental medicine versus heroic medicine, meaning like instead of like the heart surgeon, which is great, you know, there's actually listening to somebody, and and that 
this idea that that so there's stories that like you could tell like William Carlos Williams could, but there's stories. Uh, listening to somebody's story tells you more than my elbow hurts. You know, if you say, "Well, tell me, tell me about what you've been doing," and you hear a story, then it's much a more natural way, and you probably go deeper. And I think that's the same in impulse with uh, with writing, because I think if you're willing to not say, "Well, I'm supposed to go here," you never get to anywhere that that's going to make you think any differently about something. But if you say, I'm starting here and I'm going to something related to this, but I don't know exactly where it is, then you realize it wasn't about the elbow, it's really about your relationship with your son. Or I don't know what it would be. I mean, that's not a great medical example, but I think that that uh, you have to be willing to go into something and come out different. And And that's what happens in art making, and I think anything where you if you if you say I'm here I'm gonna go here I know exactly where I'm gonna go well everybody's bored by it but if you say I'm going here and when I on the way I discovered these these things and now I'm here in a different place then then it's exciting and I think that that uh, that's part of a lot of different disciplines not just not just writing It is hard to have that permission. It's hard yeah. to give oneself that permission, and I think sometimes we seek it from other people to not have a destination, to not know where you're going to end up. Right. I mean, this is such a linear space that we live in these mm-hmm. days that it always feels like you have to. Get, it's like a Google map. Your life is a Google map. If you right. just put in where you want to go, then you follow all the steps and you get there. Right. That's not really the way life works. Right. But we all kind of feel like it should be that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and I think the willingness to, uh, you can't come up with a new concept if you know what the concept is. And you can't come up with, an, you can't make a discovery in a poem, or you can't probably diagnose a patient. <laughs> I might be killing somebody by talking this way, so. But you know, there's still a moment where you, you can't know, y- your instincts can tell you it could be, instincts are important, knowledge is important, but you still have to be willing to think in a way that's not, I know exactly what the, where this is going to go, because then you do, and, um, and, and it may not need to go there, it may need to be something else. Uh, like if you think, uh, you know, um, uh, like Maine College of Art, we think, well, that's a department store. That's what's supposed to be in there. You know, we should get some retailers to go in there. And somebody says, I mean, this is not a profound transcendent example, but somebody goes, well, hey, what if we, why don't we put some, put an art school in there, you know? And it'd be, you know, just like thinking in a way, if you knew exactly what you're supposed to do, you you wouldn't have done it. And if you're right on the edge, maybe, and it's a little crazy, but not too crazy, that seems like a good place to be. In fact, when I saw... um, Hidden Figures, the movie about the uh, African-American women who did so much for the space program. And you realize like a month before John Glenn's supposed to go into orbit, they're still figuring something out. And I thought, you know, our world's so different now. Like we'd say, what? You didn't know? You started out on this? I think I'll sue you. You know, that we would say, well, you know, we believe enough in our ingenuity and that we want to make this thing happen. And it's profound enough for us that we're going we're gonna to make this leap. And I think we've Maybe we, we're not leaping. Well, people are leaping, 
but it w it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to like not know exactly where you're going to end up. Not in a way that's foolhardy or dangerous to the world, but in a way that just allows you to push yourself beyond where you think you could go. I'd like you to read for us another one of your poems, and this one is called Prayer for Joy, which sounds like you and I are kind of in the same mindset, that joy is not a bad thing to have, especially in this day and age. Prayer for Joy. What was it we wanted to say anyhow, like today, when there were all the letters in my alphabet soup, and suddenly the J rises to the surface? The J, a letter that might be great for Scrabble, but not really used for much else, unless we need to jump for joy, and then, all of a sudden, it's there and ready to help us soar and to open up our hearts at the same time. This simple line with a curved bottom, an upside-down cane that helps us walk in a new way into this forest of language where all the letters are beginning to speak, finding each other in just the right combination to be understood. You are speaking for us at Main Live, which is coming up at the end of March. Yes. People who are interested can go to our show notes page and find out more about Maine Life and can also find out more about the Maine College of Art. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming they can find out more about you and your poetry online as well. Yes, and, I think so. And your four books. Yeah. You're doing impressive work. It really is very, um, it makes me feel happy to know that we still have poets in the world. I, I mean, I know this intellectually, You're but right. to talk to someone who says, this is my thing. I'm putting my stake in the mm -hmm. ground and I am a poet. That's a good thing. Yeah. I encourage people to come watch Stuart Kestenbaum, who is the interim president of Maine College of Art, author of four collections of poems and also former director of the Haystack Mountain School of Crafts in Deer Isle. Stuart will be with me at Maine Live at the end of March. And I've really enjoyed this conversation today. So well, thank, thank you, Lisa. Thanks. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. There are many people that I have a chance to interview whose reputation precedes them, and today I have the opportunity to interview one of these individuals. This is Donna McNeil. Since retiring as Executive Director of the Maine Arts Commission, Donna McNeil has continued to support the arts in Maine, working with Dan Crew as archivist and curator of the Bob Crew Collection at the Maine College of Art, curated the Thomas Mosier Retrospective at, at Mecca, and wrote a book with Mosier to accompany the exhibit curated Self, Selfie at Engine, and is in the final stages of completing a book on Stonington artist Evelyn Koch. Boy, you're busy. Sounds like it, but I feel like I have so much free time now that I don't have to drive to Augusta every day. <laughs> well, that's true. That does put it in perspective. It's a big dent in your, in your day to take a couple hours out in the car. And um, 
it, I guess it feels luxurious because I determine my own schedule. And that's always sort of a, a wonderful thing when you get to that part of your life where mm. you can make um, time mold to you instead of the other way around. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've earned it. You, you ran a gallery for quite some time in Massachusetts. And uh, I busy. did. I owned a gallery, a, a commercial gallery in Amherst, Massachusetts for 13 years. And um, I just, you know, you have those moments in your life where you reach middle age and you look sort of down the street of your life and and it becomes a monotone. You know what the the end is going to look like. You know that you have a, s- a set of friends, a certain community, you're doing a certain job, and it's all very predictable. And I, it j- I just got bored of myself. <laughs> I decided to kind of toss it all in the air. And I sold, uh, I had a farmhouse at 14 acres, and I sold that. I sold my business, and I just moved to Maine with no prospect, really, of what I would do, uh, except be in this beautiful place near the sea and uh, an affordable place, an unpretentious place. Um, yeah, so I, that was in 1990. So why Maine? I uh, sort of grew up in a suitcase. My parents lived in, worked in the military, so we moved every three years. I had a, a chance to see the whole country and, and parts of other countries as well, and I just had this great affinity to the Northeast. I think that's one of the reasons that Amherst called to me originally, then it just, I just felt really landlocked there. I love to swim. I love this sort of grand vista where you can think that you can see your European neighbors across the expanse. And um, I had, as most people do, friends who had summer places up here and came up a couple of times. And there's something about crossing the bridge from Portsmouth uh, into Maine that um, it's palpable. You, you sense a, a difference. And I don't know if it's a ethos, uh, but um, it really spoke to me. And uh, I knew that this is a place I wanted to be. Plus, it was eminently affordable to live near the water at that time. So that was a consideration as well. How did you get into the arts? I have always um, been interested in the arts as a, as a kid. And... Um, then I went to art school. I have a BFA in painting. And um, then I uh, did the gallery work in Amherst and thought I wanted to go into museum work. So I went back and got a master's degree in art history at Harvard, which was a wonderful gift to myself. Uh, that kind of later in life learning experience, uh, when you really pay attention, <laughs> instead of you know being so happy to be out of your house and away from the your parents and all that stuff, you become an actual, uh, you take the scholarship more seriously. So that was a great gift. And then I decided that I actually didn't want to work in the museum world, that it was uh, a little bit too rigid and stratified for my tastes. Um, And then I did a lot of things in Maine. I um, became director of the Barn Gallery in Agunquit for four years. Uh, I had worked at a um, a gallery here in Portland initially, and then I uh, worked at the Joan Whitney Payson before it was the UNE gallery, and then the Barn Gallery job, and then I um, ran Ram Island Dance for about four years, and I got nabbed out of that front by um, the director of the Main Arts Commission, who asked me if I'd be interested to, in applying, and uh, 
sort of flew up the ranks in at the Main Arts Commission, uh, staying there for 10 years. And um, in the state system, there comes a time when you can, at a certain age and with a certain amount of time in service, you can retire with your pension. So on that day, <laughs> I left. <laughs> and uh, I used to wake up in the morning and, you know, six o'clock in the morning, I had to get ready, get in the car, get up at my stockings and suit and heels and get up there. And I realized I didn't have to do that. And I just would burst out laughing and my head would drop back in the pillow. And I just, I was so delighted. I know a lot of people fear retirement. And I think there, uh, there was a certain kind of trepidation for me, not having a title, not having a position in a community. Who would I be? if I wasn't that, because I don't have a family. So that, you know, my work is, means a lot in my life. And uh, to all of those out there who are thinking about retirement, you'll be just fine. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about that. Tell me about the Maine Arts Commission and, and your work there. It's interesting to me that you would say you, you chose not to do museum work because it seemed very rigid yeah. and stratified, and yeah. then you went into state I government. I did. I think there's a couple. Of, there's several things. First of all, I grew up in government. Essentially, when you're in the military, you're in the government. And I also was a child of the '60s, and I was um, part of the movement. So I had have this very political side, <clears throat> and I thought that, and I believe in public service, and I thought that the Mayor's Commission would give me a platform to do the most good for the most people. And that the kind of sacrifices that you have to make for public service, like a, a billion boring meetings, constantly having to appeal to the legislature for your teeny weeny little budget <laughs> uh, relative to other departments, transportation, health and human services, education, for example. Um, <clears throat> but the rewards are, are really Great, and you learn to hone your argument so that it can be heard by people on all sides. And I think that was a great gift that um, working in government gave me. How to make people understand the benefit of the arts to everyone. So if you have to keep articulating that over and over and over again, you understand the importance of beauty and the transcendent qualities of engaging with the creative um, uh, making. Uh, for everybody, so that's that's why government. Um, yeah, I, did I ever expect that would happen in my life? No, I mean, like much in my life, I uh, it sort of just happened. <laughs> I didn't plan it. So, if you're honing your message and you honed that over the mm -hmm. ten years that you worked within government, what was that message? <clears throat> well, I think it. Um, it varied from uh, audience to audience a little bit. And it also varies whether you're advocating for one genre or another. For example, there's a lot of data on music and how beneficial that is um, for even for brain growth. There's, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> there's great statistics. Here, you can take a minute, have some water. <coughs> See, I'm usually the one who does this, so... Oh, really? Yeah, there yeah. you go. Okay, good, thanks. I got mine out of the way early this morning, so... Of course I say that. I'll be the next. Yeah, so. I'm choking on <laughs> gathering my message to the legislature. <laughs> oh, there's some irony <laughs> there. Some irony, right? <laughs> All right. Um, m 
There are um, more people accepted into medical school who have trained as musicians, for example, than in any other discipline. And there's um, theories that it grows, sort of grows the two parts of the brain together, so you're actually using your left and right sides more efficiently. Um, so there, there was data like that that I could uh, present to people that were sort of irrefutable facts. You know, I know facts are much under challenge these days, but it, you know, there was a time when we accepted a fact as a fact. Um, and also, I brought people into the conversation by helping them to realize that everybody engages in creative practices in some way throughout their day, whether it's a formalized practice or not. And where would our life be if we couldn't um, turn on the radio and hear a song, or go to a film, or dance, or appreciate, you know, the fine arts as well. But those sort of everyday practices, even the creative practice of cooking, for example, or quilting, the things that the domestic practices that women so often did through the ages, um, the traditional arts were a great way to advocate for the arts, the canoe building, snowshoe making, um, basket weaving kinds of practices and the way that beauty enters your life through everyday objects in that way and how much it enriches our, enriches our lives. You know, the, thi the, the way that beauty works in your life, it's such a, it's such a lift um, to engage with something that's kind of aesthetically profound in shape, form, texture, color that's sort of beautifully integrated. Um, I think we respond as human beings in a very sort of lifted way to, to that kind of harmony. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things <laughs> that I might say. I am very convinced. So <laughs> if, you, if I was Show a legislator, <laughs> exactly, I would, I would give you some funds right now. I, I know. I, I, yeah. Um, I think it, there's a pitiful, I think it's 52 cents a person that goes to uh, fund the arts in Maine. And that covers every genre, uh, all the disciplines for the whole state, which is really like less than a pack of gum. So... Um, yeah, and of course, every year, I think like this year, the National Endowment for the Arts would be threatened, um, the sort of low-hanging fruit of budget cuts, and um, it's happening again, and um, it's our sister organi the sister organization of the agency, so half the funding for the state of Maine comes from the federal government for the arts. So <clears throat> it's important to, um, you know, support the nation in that, as well as your regional and local organizations. I think the private, is private support of the arts is wonderful, and this country does a great job of that, but I think it makes a statement about your public uh, value system to have your tax dollars go to f uh, fund the arts. I think it really talks about your priorities as a nation. As you're talking, I'm thinking about <coughs> some of the places that I've visited um, that have very mindfully uh, designed public spaces, for mm. example, and how it makes me feel when I go to those places. Exactly. And if I lived in that place all the time, and of course I live in a beautiful place already, mm -hmm. but if I lived in a place where somebody came along and said, we think it's important to design this space so as to inspire people or help them relax or mm -hmm. um, 
I don't know, help them maybe even work better. Yeah, I think that kind of sensitivity is um, becoming more and more prevalent as people design uh, schools, for example, uh, hospitals, um, spaces that are intended to nurture you in a certain way. Uh, I don't think that we should warehouse our children in, in the schools. I think they should have a, a, an exquisite place to visit. And I really don't believe in dumbing things down for children either. I think they respond to an exquisite aesthetic as, as um, kind of passionately as, as adults. So, um, yeah. And, and I think that if you honor that in children, that you're going to raise up a... Uh, a society that is more respondent to uh, to beautiful things and beautiful music and um, a beautiful surroundings, beautiful nature. They won't want to despoil things so so readily. <laughs> one of the reasons that we are talking today is that you have agreed to be one of our speakers for Maine Live, which. Mm -hmm is an important program that Maine Magazine mm -hmm. is putting on, and I've had the great fortune to host um, from the beginning. And that is its own art form. Yes, storytelling is an incredibly potent art form, and I am very pleased, thank you, to be one of the speakers this year. Um, and my story is not about my public life at all. It's a very personal story. Uh, it's a story about love, and it's a story about, um, I you may not realize it until years later, but there are incidences in your life that change your life utterly, completely, and forever. And this is the story about one of those decisions in my life. And I'm not going to say anything else about it. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're not going to say anything yeah. else because I, I think that there is something about the main live event that is very special. Mm -hmm. And I think even attempting to describe what you're going to be talking about, it, it probably just isn't necessary. The, the fact is people should go to main live <laughs> because it is its own thing. I think that uh, anybody who hasn't experienced a storytelling event is in for a big treat. Um, Something happens between the the storyteller and the audience. There's a great support from the audience. It's terrifically warm and um, embrace a kind of a welcome. And it becomes a space that's safe enough for you to reveal yourself, uh, often and certainly in my case, quite intimate ways. And all the stories that I've heard are, have been, whatever they're about, have been incredibly moving for that kind of personal aspect, that kind of uh, feeling that you're sitting down with somebody you know and trust and sharing something about your life. I love going to them. <laughs> well, we're very pleased that you are coming to this one as a speaker this time. Yeah. Yeah, um, my stories also I feel very timely, and um, yeah, so I'm I'm happy to share it on a, on a lot of levels. Well, with that said, anyone who hasn't bought a ticket, <laughs> please do because yes. we look forward to seeing you there. Yes, thank you. I look forward to being there. You are um, 
You're an interesting one for me because immediately upon <laughs> sitting down across from me before we started recording, we talked about the things that you wish that you had done in your life. <laughs> and this is despite the fact that we have mentioned all of these things that you have done in your yeah. life. And you said, well, maybe I, I wish I had gotten a PhD, for example, mm-hmm. among other things. Mm-hmm. I think it all boils down to, uh, as I briefly mentioned to you earlier, Lisa, um, being raised in the 50s as a female and not understanding the full range of my choices and really having to struggle through a lot of years to find a kind of personal integrity or a a voice Um, and with that a kind of self-determination about who and what you might be in life and how you could contribute fully. Um, I (laughs) did not do any of the expected things that a young woman of that age is supposed to do. I did not marry and I didn't have children. And I didn't settle down into any kind of prescribed uh, or, uh, I don't want to say ordinary, but I, but kind of a, just, I didn't settle into any expected pathway. Um, the 60s, you know, kind of hit me like a bombshell. I, it really was quite revelatory to me um, that you could be so self-determined not only in your personal life but in your in your country and in your world um so was i did i become radicalized i would say absolutely i say it's i I think it's quite radical to step outside the expected norms of um of uh, the female role in society and sort of carve your own path so um I floundered. I could say that I floundered for a while. I, uh, you know, I was a back to the lander. I had no experience uh, uh, farming in any way. I was a d- dismal failure. Uh, I didn't understand that, you know, you need to take the rocks out of your garden. I had the, the most fascinatingly shaped carrots. Um, I, d- I didn't believe in penning up the chickens and they ate all the best parts of the strawberries. I mean, it was just like a disaster. <laughs> but um, it was kind of a resting place and a, and a thinking place. I, I read an enormous am- amount during those years and I, um, I painted. Uh, and through that, I realized how tough it is to actually make a living as an artist. And so I quickly started to work for... Uh, for an, another person that had a gallery in Amherst and then eventually within a couple of years offered to buy the business from him and that's how I got into that which was sort of a, uh, just tumbling into it but uh, I managed to make it work uh, until I got kind of bored with it um, I had a woman tell me, uh, you know, for my friends in the commercial gallery world, like, you know, you're doing a courageous thing that people will drink your wine and wear your floors out, and that's just about it. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. Um, and I had, a, I had a lot of fun with that, and I supported the artists in, in that community and um, learned a lot. And... Uh, then made my move to Maine and did all the things that I mentioned earlier. But, um, yeah, so the things that I regret is, uh, are, is generally like not, not finding my path earlier, not finding my voice, not understanding my own personal power uh, earlier in life, and being more intentional about my decisions. 
I think it's a common thread. I think a lot of people probably feel that. Well, I was just sitting here thinking about people who are of this generation, Mm -hmm. let's just say, who have had more opportunities, perhaps as women, Mm -hmm. um, than generations past. And I wonder how much more they or we are taking advantage of that even so. Well, uh, you know, I think that um, we (laughs) kind of fell into that place of being superwomen, of trying to do all the things that we were supposed to do in the 50s and then adding on this other professional layer and having to be have high levels of competi- competency in both realms and sort of beating ourselves up if we, if we didn't meet those self-imposed, mostly standards. But society steps in there too. So um, I think it's, you know, each generation has their own challenges. Uh, did we let women know uh, that they could be vital in the workforce? Absolutely. But then, you know, there's a, there's a price to pay. And we, uh, we as a society haven't figured out great health, great child care systems. We haven't figured out equal pay for equal work yet. Oh, my God. And... Um, also the kind of other subtle discriminations and sort of patronization from the white male uh, dominant society. I'm sorry to say that, but it, it's such an uh, unrecog- still unrecognized undercurrent of, of our society, and we really need to bring some awareness to that and, um, and work on it. And, you know, young women today are empowered by us, but they still have that str- those struggles ahead of them. And I think that it's also interesting for me having, I'm kind of in between your generation and the generation of my daughter, mm-hmm. who's 21 now. To, <laughs> There's to a couple of generations yeah, in maybe between yeah, yeah. Okay, well, wherever we are, we're yeah. along the continuum. Yeah. And I think about all the, all the white males that I know who uh-huh. actually are not your standard white male, who have actually yeah. provided opportunity mm-hmm. and are not contributing to the undercurrent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's some great ones out there. And it's an interesting kind of back and forth mm-hmm. because I think as human beings, in many ways, we've moved forward and there's, in some ways, we're still a little stuck. Mm-hmm. I think women are raising better men these days. <laughs> well, I hope my son agrees with you, my, my 23-year-old, because uh-huh. I think it's, maybe that's right. Maybe, you know, as... as it gets better and better. It does. And it's not... You know, nobody's a bad person. It's just sort of a, a, an overlay onto our society. It was an assumption. Uh, and I think most good men, when they are presented with um, the kinds of understandings, those kinds of understandings about how women are treated in, in our society, they do come to that realization, and they do um, open up to be, you know, more tender beings and more supportive men in our lives. Well, I think if our conversation has not convinced people that they should listen to you at Maine Live, <laughs> then, I, then I don't know what will, because I think this is a very, very interesting. We have a Thank lot you. that we could continue to talk Thank about, you. but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it with, I highly encourage people to um, learn more about you by coming to Maine Live and being part of our community. And... I appreciate that you've been willing to come in and speak with me today. It's a delight, Lisa. Thank you for inviting me. I've been speaking with Donna McNeil, who 
Um, since retiring as executive director of the Maine Arts Commission, has continued to support the arts in Maine, and we are very fortunate to have you. Thank you. You have been listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 286, Maine Live, Poetry and Public Art. Our guests have included Stuart Kestenbaum and Donna McNeil. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa, and follow Love Maine Radio on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our main live poetry and public art show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Evil.